0: Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self.
1: Good morning, Scott.
0: <laughs> good morning, Cole.
1: Yeah, we got a great topic today, uh, that of Romans 13. But before we get into it, let's make sure that we state our founding guiding principles.
0: We're doing it early this time. That's Good. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so our our principles for our podcast uh, these are things that are important to us um, in the way that we have our conversations with one another, and we thought it's a good idea for you to know uh, what's important to us. So the first principle: sacred cows make great barbecue. We'll scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please, day or night. <laughs> Number two: let your flag fly proud or let your flag fly proudly. Tell me, grammar guy. Oh, it's proudly. Okay. Okay. Um, so we argue vigorously for our points of view. And then third? Bros
1: before politicos.
0: Yeah. I was gonna say Scott's always right. But no. Prob-
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's wrong, that's a different podcast.
0: Bros before politicos, We're brothers first and everything else is just details. That's right. All right, um,
1: <clears throat> what about Romans 13, Cole? Well, Romans 13 has been something I have studied ever since I was a child growing up in various churches. Uh, Romans 13 was always brought out as a text talking about our relationship to the state, and I have been confused by Romans 13 ever since I first began studying it. So I thought what we would do today is talk about it and talk about, now that I am an adult and no longer a child in church listening to different people, but have had time to think about it myself, I thought um, I would read the opening several verses, and then we would talk about it.
0: Could you read it in James Earl Jones's voice <laughs> instead of yours? <laughs> Not without some more practice. My dad has a copy of the audio Bible oh. in James Earl Jones's voice, but it's in King James version, so you have to...
1: So it's like Darth Vader reading, (laughs) right? This is the New International Version, and it's in my voice. So, Romans 13, beginning with uh, verse 1. Paul says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him if you owe taxes, pay taxes; if revenue, then revenue; if respect, then respect; if honor, then honor. And that takes us to the end of verse 7, and that's where I want to stop. So I thought what would be a productive way to begin after reading that is to tell you, Scott, four ways that I have uh, four uh, four options by which to understand This And I don't think they're absolutely mutually exclusive, but I think they're four very different ones. And then you're going to talk about a fifth way. Okay. All right. The first way you can understand this, in my mind, is at face value. That it is a a timeless statement of how God works through the state. That leaders that have been put in place from Paul's time, even up to now, are uh, instituted by God. In, including contemporary leaders, 20th century, all the political differences that had some good events, some catastrophic uh, catastrophic events, all those put there by God. And if that's difficult to understand, you know, the classic question is, you mean God put Hitler in charge of Germany? Any Any question like that that's difficult to understand is my difficulty as a reader. I just don't understand it. That's that's the option number one.
0: So God said it, I may or may not believe it, but that settles it.
1: And if I don't believe it, it's my problem. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That's option one. Option two is that Paul was talking in a moment that was constrained by time. It was, it was a time locked moment. So perhaps the leaders in Paul's day were put there by God and instituted by God for the time that Jesus was on earth and to get his ministry going. And Paul was appealing to his readers um, to respect those leaders because they were put there at that time. And any inference beyond Paul's time would be an anachronism.
0: Okay. But we're talking about Nero.
1: That's right. Okay. And if we don't understand it, again, it's our problem. It's our problem. Got it. Option number three... Paul's wrong. Paul is wrong. And this gets into how people view inspired texts and the authority of Paul's writing. But it could be that Paul was make was making a point to people that he wanted to make about authorities, and his saying that they were put there by God is just untrue.
0: So this is where sacred cows make good barbecue. Okay. I think that it's appropriate for us to always – actually investigate our bias whether scripture is always correct. I actually believe in the authority of scripture but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't test that and 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 evaluate it
1: or or believe it in a nuanced way. Sure.
0: Yeah, because because um it's quite possible that one can read texts and just imagine that we can clearly understand them not recognizing that our clear understanding is perverted. And one of the ways that I think we can deal with that is by asking, is this even true?
1: Right. And I have been parts of faith communities in my life where that was discouraged.
0: Well, me too. Yeah. Yeah. We're
1: interrogating or trying to nuance scripture and say, this is poetry, this is directive, this is proverb, Mm -hmm. proverbial literature. That was not encouraged. Yeah. Which leads us to the fourth Mm. option, which is that this these statements by Paul were intended to be a type of wisdom literature, the effect of which is for the reader to understand, I am to be a good citizen. I am to promote peace, as Paul writes in other uh, letters to churches. I am to try to get along as much as possible because I have higher priorities to live my life toward. And so getting in trouble with the laws of the state and the the policemen of the state, the tax collectors of the state, is something I want to be very far away from. So I should obey, I should be a good citizen, and get on with my work as a Christian. That is the fourth way I would see to look at this.
0: So there aren't a lot of subjunctive uh, mood verbs in this passage, mm-hmm. but it does read as potentially as a subjunctive, um, mood as a paragraph. In other words, we uh, we don't have the subjunctive mood in English. We have to do it with helper verbs, but these are wisdom statements or blessings or uh, hopes or wishes. And so it could be here that what Paul is doing is saying, um, here are some general principles that are generally true. Yeah, 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 there's Nero. Yeah, 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 there's uh, Hitler. But in general, these things are true, and I'm making a general truth that, for the most part, people in authority have been placed there by God. I do think that there that, that what you're describing here is important in that there are other genres throughout Scripture that um, even the most conservative reader will recognize as different genres with different purposes. Um. So I'll give you an example, and this will, this will resonate with people who don't believe in the doctrine of original sin, which I don't think you do. Mm-mm. I don't either. That
1: babies are born with sin. Right. Yeah, no.
0: But David does say, surely I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Yeah. Um, uh, so even the most conservative um, reader of Psalms would recognize that as a statement of wisdom. A poetic statement. Right. Yeah sometimes scholars will sometimes distinguish that as something like general revelation and specific revelation. Right. And that this is an example of general revelation. So um, it is possible that that, that's another explanation of how you might interpret this, which is a fair approach. I'm not happy with any of those four.
1: I believe you have one of your own to add to my mix.
0: Well, um, when you told me you were going to read from – Romans 13, m- my question was, why not read from Romans 12? In which case, why not start with Romans 11? <laughs> or, or perhaps or 10. Romans 1. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, so Paul does not say to himself, uh, he, d- he doesn't lick the quill of his pen, uh, he doesn't stop here and say, I'm now writing chapter 13, right? Uh, and that's a distinction we have placed on the text much later to be able to organize it. But It's not that Paul has said to himself, now I'm going to write this other book called Romans 13 that is disconnected from Romans 12. And when you read uh, uh, the last part of Romans 12, he's really talking about these are the marks of what a true Christian is. And this is where Paul says, listen, we are not Sandinistas. We are not rebels. We are not people who take evil into our own hands to try and create good. We overcome evil with good, right? So even that phrase in Romans, uh, Romans 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For, for uh, it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, Paul is not even suggesting that we look forward to rubbing our hands and saying, oh, good, he can't wait till God gets his vengeance, because even the disciples misunderstood that when they asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, "That's, that's not what we're doing here. So Paul is getting us into something that is deep and difficult, which is we are the people who overcome evil with good. We are the people who overcome hate with love. We are the people who rebel and we subvert through agape, and that is in and of itself powerful, timeless, and, um, and purposeful. So when you get to the end of chapter 12, you have now this character of what a Christian person is. As a person who thinks about good constantly and says, if there is any vengeance, that's not my business. My business is loving the people around me. My business is loving uh, uh, the world and acting in, in salvific ways for the sake of the world because I love the people here because my God loves them. And so if that is the case, let's apply it to something like the question of our role in the state in chapter 13. Or the way we interact with one another in the church in Romans 14. That these are applications. And the application is if we are going to pe- be people who overcome evil with good, how do you do that in the state? And I love him for what he says here. And that gives me a little bit of freedom because Paul will say something. Y- you read it. Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, would you have no fear? Uh, of the one who's in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval well that works if your leader is one of your tribe but Paul in a few years is going to be murdered by the authority so even in Paul's lifetime this isn't true if it's an if it is a natural law that always plays out I'm doing air quotes with my fingers yeah they can't see your air quotes (laughs) (laughs) If it's always true, then it's immediately not true in Paul's own lifetime, in Paul's own life. If, however, Paul is suggesting that there is a a virtue, there is a disposition that is displayed here in the person who overcomes good, overcomes evil with good. Uh, we are not Sandinistas. We are not rebels we are the best citizens. We're the ones who are constantly looking for ways to be good, not to take up the tools of evil to overcome evil, but we overcome evil with good.
1: Okay, let me do a little slight pushback and see what you have to say, because I'm fascinated by this view, and I want to massage it a little bit. In the chapter before that you mentioned, when he is saying, bless those who persecute you, and they're your enemies, but don't, don't feel that it's your right to exact vengeance upon. What he is not saying is, you don't have any enemies. He's saying you will have enemies. Bless them that persecute you. Why doesn't he then say, when you have a horrible leader in charge, endure it. Abide it. Cling to each other as a church when you have a bad leader. Instead, he said, you're not going to have leaders except those put there by God. That's
0: not enough. That is, it is not enough to abide it and he does re- refer to that earlier in that in that section if you jump back in chapter 12 the verse 9 which is also preceded by verse 8 which we could go back to verse 8 <laughs> right this is a <laughs> this is a thing but anyway he says rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation It's not enough for us to just endure we have to do that and the other things we have to do that and be loving it's i can endure somebody punching me and wish to God that they would de- spontaneously combust, or I can endure that abuse and hope for their salvation.
1: Yes, and I'm wondering why he didn't continue that theme. He did into bad leaders. Instead, he said, "Oh, oh,
0: oh, oh, oh yeah." You see yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah.
1: saying, "And when you have leaders, understand they're put there by God, and you need to do all they say." Why didn't he said, "When you have good leaders, rejoice; when you have bad leaders, pray for them." Um, consider it a blessing when they persecute you, he doesn't seem to leave any room for bad leaders. Moreover, he he says God puts them there. So if I am a Christian in 20th century Germany, watching what's happening to my Jewish friends, am I to say, well, God put him there and I need to be a good citizen? Or do I need to say, how can I serve as a Christian, even though this leader is abominable. Yeah. You know, and so I'm wondering, I, I think your fifth option is really interesting, which is to view Romans as a whole, not Romans 13 as a cutout. I, I get that, and I want to, I just, I'm wondering why Paul elected to go this way instead of that.
0: Well, um, me too. Uh, Luther himself, when he's giving his introduction to Romans, um, he spends a paragraph on Romans 13 and what I appreciate about Luther's introduction to Romans is that uh, Romans 13 is contextualized within the large his view of the larger outline of the entire work but Luther says this uh, he includes this not because it makes people virtuous in the sight of God but because it does ensure that the virtuous have outward peace and protection and that the wicked cannot do evil without fear and in undisturbed peace. Therefore, it is the duty of virtuous people to honor secular authority, even though they do not, strictly speaking, need it. I think that is a fascinating phrase. That what what Paul is calling us, Luther is suggesting that Paul is calling us to submit ourselves to authority even though we don't need the authority we choose to do it for a reason and i don't think paul is really he does not appear to me to be as interested in explaining god's role in the way things are outside of the church i don't think Paul is really trying to give us some theological understanding of why Nero is emperor. Now, I will say, I think Paul thinks God put Nero in place. I think he thinks that. Do
1: you think he's wrong Um, or mistaken? Are you prepared to say that Paul might be mistaken as he makes that argument?
0: I am prepared to say that Paul is a man of his time. And that Paul is in a position that I definitely need to fully explore before I reject him and say, Paul is wrong. Okay. Because Paul is right about so much here that it may be necessary for me to even believe God has chosen the leaders that are in place because that puts me in a place where I can understand the kind of man I need to be when that leader is in place. Wow! Right. I if you want if you want me to give my own cosmology, no, it's not represented here. Uh-huh. But my own cosmology may lead me down a path that gets me away from where Paul is going, and where Paul is going is something beautiful, and I really want to be there. Boy, that was that just goofy. Did kinda. I just, yeah.
1: Kinda. Kinda. But I'm I'm interested in it, and I'm interested in the comparison of Jesus' response to his apostles who say, are we supposed to pay tax? And Jesus does not say, now listen, those tax collectors and the leaders whose face are on the the coins, they were put there by my Father, and you need to obey them. Instead, he roundly dismisses it Mm -hmm. as a subject, Mm -hmm. saying, that's over there, this is over here. Mm -hmm. And... Paul seems to be a little more tied up with it, and um, it's hard. That's why this episode to try to make sense of how to make sense of Paul, who clearly writes so much beautiful literature to the churches that we gain from, and coming from a tradition that pays so much attention to the text. I want to, I want, and I want our listeners to understand the options.
0: Well, through the course of human events, Paul wins. <laughs> I mean, if you want to be strictly uh, consequentialist about this, Paul is right. His way is more powerful than Nero's. Mm. There is no longer an emperor of Rome, but we still have Paul's faith, the faith that he received from Christ. We still have that on display. We still have that. It is timelessly powerful. And so I think Paul could easily shrug his shoulders in the, in the same way that Jesus shrugged his shoulders to his disciples. I think we could see Paul shrugging his shoulders and saying, who cares who is the emperor? Um, now, I just want to make a distinction here. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think Paul is saying leaders are put there by God. But the point is not for us to believe that the leaders are put there by God. That's, my, that's the thing. The point is, Let's stop worrying about who the leader is. Let's stop worrying that we need to depose or overthrow or take on the behavior of evil to overcome evil. We have to be good. We have to be the best. We'll submit ourselves to that authority. We can even say in our own minds, and I, boy, it's a struggle for me right now but there is a a practice of saying you know what we have the president we have then i'm going to act in submissive ways is it because god put him there or do i just need to act like god put him there i don't know but either way i get paul's point i have to submit to authority
1: so that you can as much as it relies on you live in peace which is what he says later Right. Yeah. So I, I, get, I think I hear you saying that what does comport is his idea of being a good citizen so that you can get your work done and, and Jesus' dismissal with his apostles of, of that issue to say, it doesn't matter. You have other work to do. And Paul is saying, I hear you saying that Paul is saying, it doesn't matter who's in charge. Act like God put them there or God put them there because you have other things to do, such as live at peace with one another and bless the people you're with, so that you're not getting in trouble all the time and going to jail and trying to depose people. You are, in fact, living the Christian faith.
0: Yeah. Now, there are some folks who hear what I'm saying and will be very disturbed by it, because what I'm suggesting here is something other than plenary uh, inspiration. What I'm saying is that Paul is inspired here— but that not every single thing he says is universal truth. And that is a difficult, difficult dance. And it freaks some people out, and I get it freaks some people out. I think if if what you're hearing me say is Scott doesn't believe this is inspired just because he is questioning whether God actually put Hitler in place, <laughs> uh, what I would say is it's important for a Christian to carefully investigate who I'm supposed to be in the Reich and to carefully, carefully ask the question, if God put Hitler in place, then how should I act? Now, Hitler is a problem. (laughs) That's the biggest uh, statement of the day. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. Hitler is a problem. Hitler is a problem for, um, for Christianity. It's so, it, it has been so theoretical um, in Western culture. We didn't wrestle with questions un- until, until the Reich. And the early part of the 20th century was a real, real challenge. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. Um, in our tradition, uh, in the Restoration Movement, Uh, everyone was a pacifist. If you went to church on Sunday, you could very easily hear a pacifist sermon. So Cole and I are members of the Restoration Movement, which uh, are largely described by the Christian Church, the Disciples of Christ, and the Churches of Christ. And in in that movement, uh, there, there were not three distinctions in those days, but in that movement, you would easily hear sermons that would say, we have no we have no purpose whatsoever engaging in, in war. We are pacifists. In fact, Sergeant York was one of us. And the story of Sergeant York is a is a, a cool one, but part of what's interesting about that is he's a person who discovers because he tries he tries to be a conscientious objector. The, the army rejects his argument because he's a part of the restoration movement. There's no central government of the church in our in our tradition and so uh they compel him to take up arms and he becomes a war hero in world war one did you know about sergeant Roy? i did
1: not know about sergeant York.
0: oh gary cooper plays him which is a good reason to watch it anyway let's stop now and and okay and watch <laughs> but the but my point is that's that's easier to do on the other side yeah. of the third reich
1: yeah
0: oh my goodness you look at Orthodox Christianity in the latter part of the 19th century and the very early part of the 20th century is like, yeah, yeah, let's be pacifists. Pacifism is the right way to go. It's the only way to go. And then hold up a second. Oh, this is not as easy as we thought it was because Hitler represents something really, really difficult for us. Bonhoeffer struggles with this, right? Uh, and, I, and, and I oftentimes hear people bring Bonhoeffer up Bonhoeffer, um, I'm going to summarize Bonhoeffer and entire, his entire work of ethics in a few sentences, which is unfair, but Bonhoeffer takes a position that trying participating in, a, in a, an effort to overthrow Hitler violently is a sin, and I will do that sin, and I am willing— to face the fires of hell for the salvation of my brothers and sisters, which is wow. deriving from something that something else that Paul said, I, I am telling you the truth, I would give up my own salvation for the salvation of my brothers. Mm-hmm. That's Bonhoeffer is thinking about this and realizes I may be sinning by engaging in an effort to violently overthrow Adolf Hitler, but I'm willing to do that for the salvation of others. And then he also tends to know who God is and that there is a kind of forgiveness, a kind of costly grace that comes through that process. But the the idea that we are supposed to be just good citizens that God has put in place, whoever is whoever is there, for Western Christianity had not really been something that we had to explore deeply or did explore deeply until the Reich, at least during the modern era, right. I, I will say that... After the Enlightenment. Right. Yeah. I will say that the, the Protestants in, in England are, are kind of going through some of those same questions um, uh, during the, the Civil War and the parliamentary overthrow of Charles I, but uh, for us, for, especially for us in, in the United States, um, it wasn't until Hitler that this became a really, really tough question. Even the Revolutionary War... The Quakers were like, you know, we're supposed to be pacifists. They were making Christian arguments that we can't take up arms against the king. Um, they lost. But there were Christian voices who were, yeah, you know, this could be wrong. We still, we're still interested in freedom, but we should negotiate our freedom. And others who thought, no, nah, we'll take up arms and we'll, we'll fight. But, uh, but Hitler is something very unique where the most ardent pacifist looks at this and says, I, yeah, I kind of don't know what to do here. I kind of don't know what to do with Romans 13. And on this side of that, we constantly, we, we keep wrestling with it. We keep coming back to it and saying, gosh, I really don't know what to do here.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you would be interested in, you and I have talked quite a bit before about um in this in this section where Paul is talking about keeping order in the church and for women to be silent um, for all the reasons that pertain to the letter he was writing to the churches, in all that writing he uses an argument that we don't think is a very good argument, which is the reason that women should be silent in these churches is because Eve sinned before Adam. (laughs) And you and I have talked about how he was using an argument of the day, Mm -hmm. which we we don't believe is accurate or a very good argument today, but he was using an argument that back then had a lot of weight with it. And to make a point that we agree with the point that churches should be orderly and and what have you. But we don't agree with how he got there. So I wonder if you see a parallel between... I do see some parallel.
0: Um, What Paul actually says is women should learn in silence. And it is an anachronism to assume that that is subverting subverting women. It is actually uh, revolutionary for a, a former rabbi to say women should learn. Yeah, better the Torah fall into the mouth of a dog than into the hands of a woman is his contemporary was written by one of his contemporaries. Okay, right. Uh, But in First Timothy, Chapter two, Paul says in the earlier part, he says, I uh, urge that supplications, prayers, interceptions and thanksgiving made be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, uh, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So what Paul is doing in First Timothy is establishing a doctrine of peace, not a doctrine that says that women ought to shut up. It's a doctrine of peace. It's contextualized within a time. It's contextualized within an understanding of the way things are in our time. But even there, Paul is willing to say, "Hey, women should learn." It's not. Paul is not doing something here where he's trying to uh, parse out in very short verses a whole set of unrelated rules. It all goes together to make the point that we are people of peace. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our leaders when they're Barack Obama. We pray for our leaders when they're Donald Trump. We pray for our leaders when they're Adolf Hitler. We pray for our leaders when they are Nero. We pray for them. That's the kind of people we are. So um, when, when Paul gets to the, the peace in the church, and by the way, he uses the same formula he used in Romans 13 and then 14. First, he talks about us in the state in the early part of chapter two, and then Uh, He talks about us in the church in the latter part of chapter two, just like he did in uh, Romans 13, talks about us in the state, and then chapter 14 talks about us in the church. This is Paul trying to suggest to us that we are people of peace. We overcome evil with good. We are the peaceful people. And I will say, just as an aside, um, I understand people who, uh, see Paul as a misogynist. But I think it is unfair to call Paul a misogynist. And I'll tell you why. Even when you talk about in Ephesians how wives ought to submit to their husbands, that verse is very easy to look at all by itself, but it ignores the verse that precedes it, which says that husbands and wives must submit to one another. And he tells, his hus- he tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's submission so I could preach a sermon that says, wives, don't say anything in church. Shut up and just follow your husbands. But I'm taking Paul out of context, and it's not fair to Paul. So back to your earlier question. Yes, I do think Paul is a person of his time, but I think he's getting us to timeless truth if we would just get over these, these uh, statements of the way the world is and get into the way the world could be.
1: Okay, so at this point, you have not addressed the Eve sin before Adam. Yeah, I haven't. That's just, that, I'm saying
0: he's a man of his time,
1: and that's okay.
0: You can make the same argument that Paul never abolishes slavery, which I really would have liked if Paul to have done. Even in Philemon, he does. There's a perfect opportunity for him to tell um, Philemon to give him Onesimus because slavery is wrong. That's not what he says to Philemon. He says, "I understand you owe Onesimus. You own Onesimus. I get it, but he's been very useful to me, and so I want him." Mm-hmm. Right? There's a liberation that's going on there, but it's not illiber- a liberation that's defined by abolition. Paul lives in a very, very dark time when we're talking about the state, or at least the church's relationship with the state. It is the darkest. It is the darkest of times, and he's telling his fellow Christians be good citizens, mm. which it, is
1: radical unto itself. It
0: is yeah. in its time. It is radical, yeah. and I think we I think we do a disservice to Paul to say, "Oh, but you said this one thing that I, in the twenty first century, don't agree with." Um, so, therefore, I'm rejecting your argument. That's the failure of inspiration or arguments of plenary inspiration is we don't, we're not able to say this must be a, an argument of Paul's time or a statement of Paul's time, but nonetheless, the truth is timeless. The truth is the truth.
1: Well, I think you make a good point that I agree with that the overarching thrust of Paul's argument seems to be live in peace, promote peace, promote a a society where Christians are seen as living in peace so that you can get on with the work of the church. Do you think that's?
0: Yeah, that we spend a lot less time talking about our rights. I don't know if we talked about this before, but the, the state offers me the protection of the First Amendment. I have a right of free speech and assembly. I can say whatever I want. I can be with whomever I want. The state has no authority over my speech, but I'm a Christian and that means I don't have free speech. Hmm. I give up that right to free speech by becoming a part of the kingdom of God, because I actually, there's a, there's a way I'm supposed to speak. So what Paul is trying to do here is suggest that our, our purpose is not to establish our rights. Our purpose is to be submissive and submissive to the kingdom and to the to the ways of the kingdom, that we become people who lift holy hands in prayer for all who are in authority, that we become people who are less concerned with adorning ourselves and making ourselves uh, attractive, but more interested in the inner beauty that comes from being people of love. Paul is trying to get us somewhere. And... Uh, uh, I just feel like if, as long as we're going to be trying to play a game with Paul of what, is, what are the micro-truths, we're missing Paul's argument. And when we miss Paul's argument, we miss what Paul is pointing us to. And that's my frustration with the church. My frustration with the church, or let me, let me st- uh, define that, my, my frustration with evangelicalism in our age in the United States is it seems to me we keep arguing about what our rights are. And Paul says, you don't have any. You gave them up. You died and your life is now hidden in Christ. You're somebody different. And so arguing to the state about what my rights ought to be, arguing to the state about whether I should or should not have to pay taxes on my contributions to the church, arguing with the state about whether I should or should not have to bake a cake or build a ramp for a person who is disabled to my business, arguing with the state about any of that stuff is useless from Paul's point of view. These are empty discussions because you don't have any rights. You died. Your life is now hidden in Christ. You don't have any rights. It doesn't matter if the state says you do or says you don't. You are in Christ. The irony of this is that because I died and I live in Christ, I am existentially free. So there's a great deal of freedom for Paul in this new life as well.
1: What, you, what I think of immediately when you say that is if we have given up our so-called rights and we are now existentially free— to live a life that we're supposed to live as a Christian I my first two commands are to love God and love my neighbor and if the state is telling me here is a law that prevents you from loving your neighbor in some way in some way you can't build a ramp to your shop to help people who need ramps because we forbid it now they are in my view trespassing on my ability to love my neighbor, and I might have a response to the state under those conditions.
0: Well, wouldn't it have been a perfect opportunity for Paul when the state is saying, you may not assemble and worship, for Paul to say to the church, you know what, we need to, we need to create a First Amendment in Rome, a right to assembly because we don't have one and they are making it impossible for us to be Christians. That is not what Paul says. And it's a perfect opportunity for him to have done it, but it's the wrong thing from what Paul is going for or what the church in the, in the first century is going for. The church defined by Christ is not concerned with this. If you tell me I can't build a ramp for a person who's wheelchair bound to enter my shop or my store, that does not prevent me from loving that person. All you can do is prevent me from acting in one way. And you can prevent me from acting in all ways, but you still don't stop me loving that person. You do not impede the freedom I have to love anyone whenever I want to, however I want to. You can put me in the chair and you can try to light me up. (laughs) You can't stop me from loving the executioner. I have existential freedom to love and to live a life of love, regardless, you can do anything to me, you can do anything to the church, but we will overcome because love overcomes
1: evil. Scott, this is a perfect segue to the, our next episode, which, during which, we're going to take up the question, among some other things, should Christians have participated in the American Revolution? Mm-hmm. And we're going to have uh, the first of some guests podcasters with us and that will remain a secret until then but it isn't it's absolutely it is not tangential it is an absolutely integral part of this question is if i am a persecuted colonist in the new lands of the new british colonies do i have the right or the responsibility, or the necessity to participate in a revolution against the head of my government. Yeah,
0: and, and our view, our view, what we've described so far is going to come under judgment. Yes, right. I'll say. Yeah. So and uh, so will our guest will bring the judgment with him. I'm sure.
1: All right.